0: The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him, and tied the sash around his waist, and clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him, and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the Urim and the Thummim, and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood, and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it, and purified the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the... sorry, lost place. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his son's and his son's garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments, and his son's and his son's garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there there eat it, and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it, and what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days, until the days of your ordination are completed for it will take 7 days to ordain you as has been done today the lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you at the entrance of the tent of meeting you shall remain day and night for 7 days performing what the lord has charged so that you do not die for so i have been commanded and aaron and his sons did all the things that the lord commanded by moses
1: well what do you think of When you hear the word priest. Sorry, what was that from the? Catholic. Catholic. Yeah, I think for most of us in the West, uh, no doubt we think of the Catholic priest, the one who wears the reverse collar, the bit of uh, white at at the neck there, and who abstains from marriage. For the gamers among us, Perhaps you think of your level 50 priest with 200 HP and 500 XP. Yeah. I'll tell you later. What a priest uh, is and what they do is uh, crucial to understanding our passage this morning. Because not only does it help us understand God's instruction to ancient Israel, it also helps us understand ourselves. Church, we are all priests and priestesses in God's kingdom. And to help us grasp and uh, live that out better, we must dive into Leviticus chapter 8. This morning, we'll begin by uh, taking a step back and looking at the big picture of Leviticus and how the priesthood fits into that. And then we'll look in a bit more detail at the particulars of what we see in this chapter before finishing with the fulfillment of these in Jesus and the implications for us today. And along the way, I'll point out some applications for us. And as we do that journey, uh, we're going to, it it will come under the, the following four headings. Firstly, priesthood, the way in. Secondly, consecration, our high, sorry, holiness, crucial. Thirdly, ordination, our high priest. And fourthly, obedience, a kingdom of priests. And with Bibles and ears open, hands ready to respond and feet ready to walk in his ways. Let us begin with our first heading. Firstly, priesthood, the way in. Now, in case you missed it or you can't remember, in our overview sermon of the book of Leviticus, we saw how the central problem of this book is how God's people may enter God's presence. That's why that's what it is in our artwork. You see how God's people enter God's presence. From Genesis chapter 3 onwards, the big question is how can humanity get back into the presence of God? They've been cast out because of Adam and Eve's disobedience. The book of Exodus finishes with God having given Moses instructions about how they will worship him, particularly through the tabernacle, the priests, and the offerings. But then we're left with this surprising picture of the greatest prophet in Moses that Israel has ever seen not being able to enter the tent of meeting. In Exodus 40, verse 35, he was not able to enter. And so when we see that picture, after all of that, we think to ourselves, how can anyone enter the presence of God if Moses himself couldn't? And so Leviticus is the beginning of a way to address that very problem. Verse 1 of the book says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. It shows uh, that what God would do in this book and, and say to Moses is the blueprint of how Israel would be able to enter into God's presence. As we've seen over the last few weeks, the, the first seven chapters tell us about the various offerings that made up that part of their worship And while this is the beginning of a way into the Lord's presence, we still haven't seen how anybody will be able to enter into the most holy place. Now that's going to come in chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement, which is the climax of the book of Leviticus and even the Pentateuch itself. But here in our next few chapters, we see the establishment of the priesthood and of the high priest who would be the one that would enter on that day. We've had the laws for the offerings in chapters 1 to 7, and now we have the ordination of the priesthood. Chapters 8 to 10 are the next movement in the story that builds towards the Day of Atonement. And each chapter builds on the one before, adding a new layer to our understanding of the priesthood. And before we come to chapter 8, it's worth noting that the Lord has already given Moses instructions about what to do on this day. Uh, if you've ever uh, come into a story halfway through, uh, there is, uh, um, that's usually a, a surefire way of not understanding or enjoying the rest of it. I've never met anybody who's picked up uh, a best-selling novel and then, just, and then just flicked to the middle of it and started reading, right? You always read from the beginning because then the stuff that happens later on makes sense. Well, that's just like with the Bible, So often, like a good story, knowing what has come before us uh, gives us a much better grasp of what comes later. And the beauty of the Bible is that it was written by God. It has such depth to it that we can go back to it again and again for the rest of our lives and see how things that came before set up what comes later. And so, for our chapter this morning, Exodus chapter 28 to 29 provides some important background. As much as I would have loved for us to read through both chapters this morning, that was probably too much uh, for one sitting, not just for the kids, but the adults as well, I'm sure. But I do encourage you to read of it and in your study of Leviticus chapter 8 and in your understanding of what uh, it is to be a priest in ancient Israel. throughout this morning, I will refer to parts of those two chapters. But the key thing to grasp is that we see in Exodus chapters 28 to 29, God telling Moses what to do when he ordains Aaron and his sons to the priesthood. And chapter 8 tells the story of how Moses did what God commanded there. So 28 to 29, instructions on what to do. And this morning, Leviticus 8, Moses and the people and the priesthood carrying that out. And you can tell that this is assumed because of the first few verses. Here is an example of if you don't know what comes before, you're asking yourself the question, what's going on? Verse 1 and 2 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread. You notice how the Lord refers to the garments, the anointing oil, etc. Now I must admit, when I first came to it, I thought. What what garments is he talking about? What what oil? How how can he say, you know, you use the word the when you know that the person you're speaking to knows what you're referring to. Uh, And and so, what, what, the garments? What? Yeah, that's right. The Lord can say this because Moses already knows what he's talking about. God has already given him the uh, instructions. And then in verse 3, Moses, uh, God instructs Moses to assemble the entire congregation at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, Given that the whole nation of Israel uh, wouldn't have fit in that courtyard, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, in that uh, it was probably the elders and some leaders of the nation that would have come as representatives of uh, Israel. But the the phrasing of this, the calling of the whole congregation showed the significance of this event. This was a very important milestone in the life of Israel. And notice the key verse in verse 4. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Sorry, I've missed that. Yeah. Now, this whole chapter is carefully structured into seven sections. And each section finishes with and is marked by obedience to what the Lord commanded Moses. So in verse 4, we see that after he, he um, gathers the people. And then in verses 9, 13, 17, 21, and 29, we see that same, uh, same phrase coming through, "'As the Lord commanded Moses.'" He did as the Lord commanded Moses. And then finally in verse 36, And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded Moses. Now this is not an accident. It is by design. And the number seven in the Bible normally has a specific meaning. Now kids, can anyone give me any examples of the number seven in the Bible? Yeah? Sorry? in Ruth uh, I can't remember in Ruth what hap- which part seven sons that's right they, so when they talk about how a uh, Ruth is is better to Naomi than even seven sons anyone else kids kids <laughs> not the big kids yeah was oh uh, no that was a uh, I'm going to crawl under the chair, hand up. Big kids. Anyone got some? Seven days and seven sons of Uh Are they related? No, they're, well, they're two different things. Yeah, the seven days of creation and the seven sons of Kiva. Yeah, anyone else? Okay. Sorry, Daniel. The whole book of Daniel. <laughs> Sevens everywhere. I'll leave that to you to, uh, to do some of your own word searching. But uh, the one that was mentioned, the seven days of creation, uh, perhaps one of the clearest and ones that we still have today. Now, the seven, often in Scripture, it it refers to this sense, this idea of completion, fullness. Uh, And uh, we'll actually see the number seven again in uh, the rest of chapter eight. So what what God is telling us through the structure of this chapter is that this whole process of ordaining the priesthood is one that is complete. It is not lacking anything. By the time it is finished, the priesthood is ready to serve the Lord and his people through proper worship. But as we see here, the first step is gathering the people and preparing for the ordination of the priests, This is something of a a changing of the guard. Moses has effectively been their high priest up until this point, but he is now about to be replaced by his sons. So Moses faithfully obeys and the ordination ceremony begins. This brings us to our second heading, which is going to be our longest uh, out of all of them. Consecration, holiness, holiness crucial. Uh, as the name of this heading suggests, what the various elements of the ordination of the priests communicated was their consecration. Now kids, I'm going to spare you the pain of asking you what that word means. But if one of you does know, I would be very impressed. We're going to see that word come up a few times in this chapter, and it means to, be set, uh, to set something apart as Holy. Or in a way, to make it holy. Now last week we saw how in the religious practice of ancient Israel, there was a clear separation of, of what is holy and what is unholy. The priests were set apart as holy. Holy. Their job, their function, their service to God and his people was to handle the holy things with care and to carry out their holy duty before their holy God. That's what it meant to be a priest. That was their function. That was what they did and how they served on behalf of the people. They were consecrated, set apart, and I apologize for the somewhat clumsy wording of the second half of this heading, holiness crucial. It may have been subconsciously inspired by the territory's slogan, boundless possible. But the point of it is that holiness is crucial. That is, it is essential, necessary. It is required in order for the priests to serve. They cannot come before God without being made Holy. Now, even as we see in the first part, this consecration happens even in what they wear. Verse 6, to begin with, tells us that Moses washed Aaron and his sons. We've seen that with some of the offerings, the washing of, of the legs and other uh, parts of the, the animal in order to present it as cleansed before the Lord. Washing clearly indicated purification. This is likely where John the Baptist's practice of baptism came from. And it's the image that the Bible loves to use of God's people, especially of those who are in Christ. Ephesians 5 tells us, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. You notice the language from Leviticus in Paul's description there. Here he is talking about marriage and he brings in the the sacrificial language from the book of Leviticus. Christ's bride, his church has been cleansed by his word. That she might be holy and without blemish. So, as part of the ordination, the consecration of the priests, they would be washed. And once washed, they were to put their clothes on. In verses 7 to 9, we get a description of what the high priest wore. Verse 13 describes what the rest of the priests wore. And as we see, particularly from verses 8 and 9, the high priest had a more elaborate uniform. Now we, we have some kind of understanding of this today. When we see somebody wearing a uniform, whether that's in the army or in the police or uh, somewhere else in another situation, we, we, we are able to mark that person out as, as having a specific role, a specific purpose. Well, so it was for the priests, and in particular, the high priest. And in the book of Exodus, we get even more detail. Let me read to you verses 29 and 30 of chapter 28. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Let me encourage you to meditate on those verses. What a beautiful picture of what our Lord Jesus does for us. It is what he is doing now. He is bringing us to regular remembrance before the Lord. Our names are written on his heart as the names of Israel were written on that of the high priest, on his breastpiece, And he is bearing the judgment of the people on his heart before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, take comfort and rest in knowing that Jesus has done and is doing this. As that great hymn says, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. That last line, if you don't read Shakespeare in English every day, means no one, no person, no tongue, no word can cause me to be cast out of his presence. We don't know exactly what the Urim and the Thummim were. They were possibly two small colored stones. What we do know is that in the few examples we have in Scripture, they seem to be used to discern the will of God. Ezra chapter 2 verse 63, for example, shows that the, the priest was, um, would consult with Urim and Thummim to know what God desired in that situation. For us today, we now have God's word in scripture to discern his voice and his will. We must ask the question, do we hold it near to our hearts? Do we consult it when we seek to know what he desires? Or do we sometimes wish we had our own Urim and Thummim? God's word is sufficient, brothers and sisters. Do you go to it? To discern what he desires. Well, verse 9 in our chapter tells us about the high priest's turban and the gold plate set in it, the holy crown, it's described. Again, Exodus 28 gives us more detail in verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, Holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. The gold plate that was on the high priest's turban was basically screaming to the world, consecrated, holy to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, you and I aren't high priests, but we are indeed priests. And that living remains. Let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Jesus said, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, our great high priest charges us to display for all to see that we are set apart for him, that we are consecrated, that our concerns and our desires are bent towards being holy, serving him, sacrificing our lives as an offering of worship, in holiness. Is our holiness visible to the world? Is it seen by those who watch our lives? A great place to begin in order to grow in this is J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. I encourage you to, to read it. You can get it for free online. Allow me to whet your appetite with these excellent lines from the introduction. I have had a deep conviction for many years that practical holiness and entire self-consecration to God are not sufficiently attended to by modern Christians in this country. Politics or controversy or party spirit or worldliness have eaten out the heart of lively piety in too many of us. The subject of personal godliness has fallen sadly into the background. He wrote that in 1877. Sadly, it remains true today. May being holy to the Lord be at the front of our minds. the next part of the ceremony was the anointing. In verse 10, we uh, read that Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. Now, the anointing oil had its own secret recipe, a bit like the chicken spice at KFC, but also nothing like it. Uh, Exodus chapter 30 uh, tells us the ingredients that went into this oil. You can see it there, finest spices, liquid, myrrh, sweet-smelling cinnamon, aromatic uh, cane, cassia, olive oil. As we've seen all along so far in the book of Leviticus, everything that was prepared for the worship of the Lord was done carefully and with the best components. The anointing oil was no different. Moses sprinkled it on the altar seven times. There it is again. Add that to your bingo card. Seven times, again, symbolizing complete consecration and also anointing the the altar and the utensils and the basin to consecrate them for the offerings that would be given on them. Now, even the objects used for worship were to be consecrated. And then Aaron himself was consecrated with oil being poured on his head. Now, This is what the well-known verse in Psalm 133, which we read at the beginning, is referring to. The oil that is poured on the head, running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. This action recognized Aaron as the high priest. He would be the one who would represent the nation of Israel before the Lord. He would be the one who would enter on their behalf. After these anointings, our next three sections involve offerings. The first is a sin offering involving a bull. Once again, you might remember, it was the most valuable of the animals that you could offer. It was worth much. And then we have two rams that are presented for a burnt offering and an ordination offering. Now, given that we've looked at these various offerings several times over the last few sermons in Leviticus, I won't go over those details that we have already seen a few times. But it's worth noting a few things here. Firstly, it's worth noting that the order of these offerings is significant. The sin offering is first because it was how the priests received forgiveness for their sin. They could not begin this work, they could not enter into the presence of God in order to serve the, the people and represent them without their sins first being forgiven. And just like with any sin offering for a priest, no flesh was to be eaten of it. It was too serious for that to happen. You might remember in, in some previous offerings, the flesh was allowed to be eaten by the priests. While the sin offering, when it was given for a priest, was never to be eaten. And interestingly here, as we see in verse 17, absolutely everything, including the skin of the animal, was burned up. The consecration of the priesthood and the sacrificial system was not something to be trifled with. God's holiness demanded it. The sin offering was followed by the burnt offering, which communicates total devotion to the Lord and a dependence on his atonement for acceptance before him. Once again, we've seen that in previous weeks. And like the normal burnt offering, the result was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And finally, the ordination offering was the final step in appointing Aaron and his sons as priests. It was also the one from which they ate, perhaps signifying the same thing as the peace offering did. They were welcomed at God's table, having had their sins forgiven, having offered up the burnt offering of dedication to the Lord. They now offer up the ram of ordination and feast with the Lord in his presence. And then we have this curious ritual. Let's read from verses 23. Sorry, let's read verses 23 to 24. And he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. We saw with the sin offering that blood was smeared on the horns of the altar, which represented the whole altar. And we see here the same kind of symbolism happening. As Moses puts blood on the extremities of Aaron and his sons, on the lobe of his ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot, it is as though their whole bodies are being consecrated by the blood interpreters in ages past have seen symbolism of these particular body parts ears with which the priests were to hear and respond to the lord's commandments to his word hands with which they were to serve him in worship lifting up sacrifices offerings of worship to the lord and feet which were to walk in uprightness and holiness before our God. You notice the priests didn't wear any footwear, just as Moses was instructed to take off his sandals when the Lord appeared to him in the burning bush, saying, for this is holy ground. Total and complete devotion was required of the priests. Their whole selves Devoted to him. So it is with us. May we have ears to hear the word of God. Hands ready to respond and to offer up our works, our lives, all we do. And feet ready to walk in holiness. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul. With all your mind and all your strength. After this, the uh, fat and the liver and the kidneys and the right thigh, as well as one unleavened loaf, one loaf with oil and one wafer, are taken and put into the hands of the priests. We saw a few weeks ago that the fat represented the best part of the animal and that the liver and the kidneys perhaps represented what we would consider the heart, the, the center of our emotions and our desires. In placing these into the hands of the priests, it showed how they would offer up their best to the Lord. But in Moses also placing bread in their hands, there was a recognition of the ordinary, of the everyday things also being part of their regular worship. So it is with us. I need not remind you again from last week that everything we do, is offered up to the Lord in worship. We don't just think to ourselves, well, I'm going to set that goal and I'm going to pursue that thing and that's going to be the thing that I do for God and everything else I'll just do for myself. Even the most mundane activities are offered up in worship. I saw this week... uh, uh, a meme was going around again about Kylie Jenner being the, uh, the youngest self-made billionaire, uh, which in itself is hilarious because self-made, sure. Uh, and it was actually a- an article from a few years ago uh, where um, Forbes ended up retracting. She'd lied about her finances or something and so she wasn't actually a billionaire, boo-hoo. But I, uh, it came up on my feed because uh, there was a pastor who, who uh, um, posted the meme, which said something like, Kylie Jenner is the, the world's youngest, you know, at 21 years old, the world's youngest self-made billionaire or something like that. And then the final tagline was, what are you doing with your life? And the pastor, uh, which I loved, his response was, As if the greatest thing in life to pursue is great wealth. Far more important is the pursuit of what matters, or something like that. He's not wrong. And we would be making a grave mistake if we thought that, that the, the little deeds of faithfulness in our lives were somehow less valuable in the sight of God. Brothers and sisters, don't succumb to the temptation that your life is meaningless if you have not achieved some great thing. If there's not something that could uh, cause a book to be written about your life. Because as much as we do pursue God in our grand pursuits, in our best efforts, in all of these things, we pursue him also in the mundane things. And all of that matters to him. Does it matter to you? Does it matter to you that our mundane worship Matters just as much as the big things we might pursue. The mundane things, like when you do your job without grumbling, even if it is mind numbingly repetitive. The mundane things, like when you continue to show patience to difficult people. The mundane things, like uh, kids, when you are selfless and kind towards your brothers and sisters. Parents, when you hold back anger and show patience. When you make little sacrifices of time and money that interrupt your day for the good of others. When you perhaps walk away from the big goal pursuit, the big career thing, because it is asking of you something that compromises faithful, everyday obedience. That worship is pleasing to the Lord. Do you pursue him? Do you pursue faithfulness to him? Above what the world pursues. That is the way of the great high priest. And it is in stark contrast to a world that seeks to use people for personal gain. Have you calibrated your heart and your life's pursuits. I read this week in my devotional time from Proverbs sixteen sixteen, which seems appropriate. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. And wisdom isn't being smart. Wisdom begins, as the Bible says, with the fear of the Lord. Are you chasing that down? May all of life for us begin and end with the fear of the Lord. While taking these parts of the meat and bread and putting them in the hands of Aaron and his sons before waving them as a wave offering symbolized, as we saw last week, offering these up to the Lord and then burning them up like a burnt offering once again displays complete devotion and surrender to him. The imagery of putting these things in their hands first is appropriate because, you see, something we miss in our English translations and in our usage of the word ordination is that the original Hebrew word has the meaning of filling. That's, that's literally what it means. And perhaps in this case, literally even to, to fill the hands. That's what ordination means. And so what is being communicated in this is that the priests will be the ones who offer up these offerings of worship, whose hands will be filled and who are set aside with the holy things. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a bit of a changing of the guard. Verse 29 shows that Moses had his own portion from the offering that was especially for him. His uniqueness is marked out here in verse 29 as he then passes on the baton to the priesthood. After the offerings, there is another set of anointing with the oil to again highlight the consecration of the priests in verse 30. And then to cap off the whole thing, the final act was to boil the flesh from the ram of the ordination offering and uh, to do that at the entrance of the tent of meeting and they were to eat it along with the bread. Aaron and his sons were the only ones who were to eat it. Exodus 29:33 tells us that this is because the food is holy and cannot be eaten by an outsider. Which isn't surprising to us because we've seen this before with some of the other offerings. And just as with the sin offerings, they weren't allowed to eat the leftovers the next day. Well, one of the great and glorious privileges and truths of the new covenant is that all God's people now, we are not, there is no separation between the priest and the commoner, between Aaron and his sons and the outsider. No, each of us now hold that great privilege and responsibility of being the ones who are set apart and consecrated. And finally, the whole thing finishes with yet another set of sevens. The priests were to stay at the entrance of the tent of meeting in that courtyard for a full seven days. And the explanation is even given, because that is how long it will take for them to be uh, anointed. How long it will take to ordain them? Sorry, skipped one. Exodus tells us that each day a bull would be given as a sin offering. And again, the symbolism of the number seven is intentional. The ordination is complete at the end of the seven days with the priests filling the role. And their purification, as verse 34 says, will be complete. Complete. And notice this interesting sentence in verse 35. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. Now, If, if through reading the book of Leviticus, you, you've somehow forgotten how serious all of this is, well, here is yet another reminder The crucial link between obedience and life. The consequence of disobeying the Lord's commands is death. The consequence of not carrying out the worship of the Lord in his tabernacle according to his commands was death. And sadly, in chapter 10, we will see a confronting example of this with Nadab and Abihu. And friends, the consequence of not obeying his command today is still death. To break God's law is sin, and the wages of sin, as Romans 6:23 tells us, is death. As we've seen all throughout the book of Leviticus and have been reminded again in this passage, the holiness of the Lord is like being too close to the sun. You see, on earth, we're millions of miles away, and yet we still get burned by it. But get near enough to be in the presence of the sun, and you will cease to exist. God's holiness burns up all in his presence that is not holy, which is quite literally what happens in chapter 10. Unless we have had our sin atoned for and have been made holy by him, there is nothing for us but death. And not just death in this life, but what the Bible calls the second death, eternal punishment under the wrath of God in hell. Just as the priests had to be made holy in order to enter the Lord's presence, so we may only come before our holy God if we have been made holy. But our own good works can't get us there. Because even our obedience is a mixture of good and impure motives. And just as the priests and the people required blood to atone for their sin, so do we. Holiness is crucial. I use the word crucial in the heading of this section intentionally because the root meaning of the word crucial is cross shaped. Not only is holiness essential, not only is it necessary, required in order to come before the Lord, but it is made possible by the cross. And that brings us to our third heading, ordination, our high priest. I mentioned before that ordained literally means filled in the original Hebrew, And that same word in the Pentateuch seems to have theological significance. It's used in Genesis 1 in the the account of creation when God tells all living things and specifically Adam and Eve to fill the earth and subdue it. That is the same Hebrew word that we have in our passage of Leviticus 8 that is translated ordain. If you cast your mind back to our first sermon on this series, uh, we saw how the tabernacle was designed and shaped as a type of the Garden of Eden. Kids, can anyone remember what, what God puts at the entrance to the Garden of Eden when they are cast out? A flaming sword and... Sorry? Angels, yeah. Well, I mean, technically cherubim. That's right. And those cherubim, as we saw, are woven into the tent of, uh, in the tent of meeting. The tabernacle was designed to be a type of the Garden of Eden. And one of those connections is the fact that Adam was to the garden as the priest was to the tabernacle. Adam was like the high priest of all of God's creation. He was meant to be the tabernacle of God's, the high priest in the tabernacle of God's world. He was our representative, the representative of all humankind. He was supposed to fill the earth with a people who would worship the Lord in holiness. But we know the story. He sinned and disobeyed God's commandment, which is why death resulted And Genesis chapter 6 uses the same word again to show us how far humankind falls. In verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Yet again, the same word. Instead of the earth being filled with the glory of the Lord as it was meant to be, it is filled with violence. That's not the way it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be filled with the glory of the Lord. And so in God's great plan of redemptions, we see glimpses of how God is bringing that back. That same verse we saw at the start, Exodus 40, verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Same word. Of course, the problem remains. How can anybody enter? Moses could not enter. Well, In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word used for ordain in Leviticus 8 is one that also pops up in the New Testament. And again, the author who uses it the most seems to be doing so knowingly. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the author to the book of Hebrews does exactly that. Hebrews, more than any other book in the New Testament, unpacks how the Levitical priesthood finds its perfect fulfillment in the perfect priest, Jesus Christ. And there are several places to go in the book of Hebrews for this, and I believe I've quoted a verse from Hebrews in just about every sermon on Leviticus so far. But I think a few key verses from chapter 7 probably capture best how the ordination of the priesthood, the filling of the priests in the tabernacle, are ultimately perfected in Jesus. Let me read to you Hebrews 7 verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? The word perfection there is the same word for ordination in Leviticus 8. You see, this is communicating fullness, filling. And the author is asking the question, why did the Aaronic priesthood have to be replaced? Why did there need to be another priesthood? Well, the answer, because it wasn't perfect. It wasn't fully filled. Though everything we read about in Leviticus 8 was a step in the right direction, as Nadab and Abihu would quickly show us, it was not perfect. It was not filled as it should be. It was awaiting the perfect high priest. Here's Hebrews 7, a few verses later from verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, that is Jesus, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Can you see the wisdom of our God in this? Do you hear what he's saying? The priesthood of Leviticus could not go on forever, could not last, because each of these high priests, they were limited by death. They died And not only that, they were imperfect. They had to offer up offerings for their own sin. The symbols, the types, and the truths that are embedded in in God's work in history through Leviticus chapter 8 and pulls all the way through to the coming of Christ. They are all fulfilled in him and they were all part of the story the story that would one day find its fulfillment in Jesus, the one who himself was holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. We needed a perfect high priest. One who would not have to offer sacrifices for his own sin. One who would be the once for all sacrifice for the atonement of our sin and would be the great high priest who now goes before the throne of God and intercedes for his people and continues forever. If you're here this morning and you've not recognized your hopeless state before a holy God without a perfect high priest representing you, then that can change today. The beauty of knowing and following Christ is that he provides for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. His perfection is credited to us as he takes on our sin. He shed his blood so that our sin might be atoned for. And he invites all people everywhere to receive the free gift of forgiveness by turning from their sin and trusting in him for salvation, including you. He is the perfect high priest, the final one to be ordained, the perfect one. You don't have to meet God on the day of judgment in fearful expectation of that judgment. You can go before him with the confidence of knowing that your name is graven on his hand and written on his heart. And upon turning to the great high priest, he welcomes you into the royal, holy priesthood. That brings us to our final heading, Obedience, A Kingdom of Priests. As I mentioned earlier, chapter 8 is marked by seven sections, all ending with obedience to the commands given by Moses. But what do you notice about the last one compared to the others? Verse 36 says, And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Remember, this is the beginning of the Aaronic priesthood. It is the changing of the guard. And what we're seeing here is the establishing of a priesthood that would carry on this role into Israel's future. And the chapter finishes with a very encouraging sign. They obey. They do all as the Lord commanded them. Brothers and sisters, such is our calling as those who have turned and trusted in our great high Priest. I read it last week, but it's worth repeating again. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are a holy priesthood. The worship of God's people is no longer mediated by earthly priests. We have one mediator, a perfect high priest. And because of him, we can approach the throne of God with confidence, knowing that our acceptance is based on his perfect grace, knowing that when we come before him seeking his grace and his mercy, he faithfully gives it to us through Jesus Christ. And so we now offer up our spiritual sacrifices, which are made acceptable by our high priest. So fellow priests and priestesses, how will you continue to live a holy life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our desire is to be obedient to all that you have commanded. And yet as we read so often in Scripture, we see how impossible that actually is, having inherited the sin of Adam. But Father, we are so thankful that that is not where, what our acceptance before you is based on, but that our acceptance is based on our perfect high priest, Father, we are so thankful that it is not our obedience to your commands that makes it possible for us to enter your uh, presence, but his. And so we pray that as we look to our great high priest, as we look to him and consider uh, all that you have called us to in being a holy priesthood, may we live lives of faithful obedience by your grace being accepted through our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.